The scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. You can find that on page 563 in the paperback Bibles. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he started, so he should compete, complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. By a show of hands, how many of you guys have ever had to fundraise a support letter or anything like that? Was, it, was that a fun experience for you guys? Uh, I remember having to fundraise in college so that I can go on a summer missions trip to Thailand. It was not a fun experience. It was not pleasant. In fact, it was very difficult for me to send these support letters to my family and friends, to those I actually cared about and would wanted to see again, because deep down I believed that these, prayer, these support letters were a nuisance. I wanted to begin each letter with an apology. Dearest Michael, I'm so sorry for what you're about to read. I'm so sorry to ask. The whole concept of asking was just so awkward. It felt like... I was pulling teeth like I was some beggar in need of someone else's help to make my dreams come true. 
And then my perception began to change in 2013 when Kendra and I went to be examined to see if we had the gifts, the DNA, the makeup, the wiring to become church planters. And at the end of the long weekend, the director of our denomination's church planting arm said the most difficult part, perhaps, of starting a church is fundraising. And I thought, duh, tell, tell me something I don't know. I mean, obviously, no one likes asking for money. And then what he said next completely changed the way I, how I thought about the whole thing. He said, do not rob the people of God the opportunity to give. Do not rob the people of God the opportunity to give. And I remember it being just, I remember it striking me because he was talking about asking people to give not as a burden or something to apologize about, but as a gift. Could it be possible that asking people to be generous was not so much an obligation and was more an, op an opportunity? The last several weeks, we've been doing a series on stewardship. And we've been looking at what it means to be God's trustees of the resources that He's given us. And He's entrusted us with so much. And if what we possess is not ours, then what are we supposed to do with it? Today, we'll close out our series by looking at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And in chapters 8 and 9, we see that the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about how the gospel makes us generous people. So how do we become a people that is characterized by generosity? How do we become a generous people? That's the question I would like to ask and try to answer here this morning. How do we become a generous people? First, we need to recognize that our poverty is not an obstacle. We need to recognize that our poverty is not an obstacle. Now, the Corinthian church, we, we find them that they were struggling with the same fight that we are struggling with today. And that is that we oftentimes find that we have a desire to be generous people. We find that there is a gap between how we want to give and how we actually give. That there is this gap, this you know, point A, our desire, and point B, our actions, and we feel that this chasm is too often insurmountable or impractical to bring together. And the Corinthian church knew something about this gap. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we find that Paul had been putting together a capital campaign to raise money in order to provide relief for the churches in Jerusalem. Now, the churches there had uh, been fighting through a famine. A famine swept through the land and had left many of the churches in really bad shape. In fact, they were in so bad shape, they were needing so much help, that the Apostle Paul spent nearly a decade of his life trying to raise funds to provide relief for the churches in Jerusalem. He would go from church to church to church asking Gentiles to essentially start a savings account with the designated purpose of giving to their Jewish brothers. And among the first churches to respond and pledge to give was none other than the Corinthian church. And yet when the Apostle Paul writes the second letter to the Corinthians, we find that the church has failed to make any sort of significant progress. Despite their desire to give, there was a gap between point A and point B. 
there was a gap. Like, how do we, how do we get there? I mean, maybe it, they felt it just wasn't the right time. I mean, we get that. Maybe it's just not the right time. Or maybe they felt that if they were to give the little they felt they had to the Jerusalem church, then maybe they might not have any left over for themselves. Because we never get the feeling that there is enough left over to give. We never get the feeling that there's enough left over to give. How many of you guys have seen that movie Napoleon Dynamite? Okay, remember Napoleon's best friend? Who's Napoleon's best friend? Pedro, yes. Remember that scene when Napoleon and Pedro are in the cafeteria and Napoleon just, is, is just scarfs down his food and he, he eyes Pedro's plate and he sees those tater tots. And he goes, hey, are you going to eat those tots? Well, then can I have them? And he, he takes Pedro's tater tots and he stuffs them down his pants. You know, a little bit extra for a little bit later, just in case. And it's like the Israelites in the wilderness, who despite being provided manna daily, still felt the need to stuff a little extra for a little later, just in case. You see, the biggest obstacle to generosity is not our poverty. The biggest hurdle from point A to point B is not how much we have in our savings account. The biggest obstacle is a matter of the heart. Amen. Because our hearts are clouded by a dark cloud of scarcity. We're surrounded by a dark cloud of scarcity. We never feel that there's enough left over to give. So the Apostle Paul wants us to consider the Macedonian church. He wants us to consider the churches in Macedonia. And who are they? Well, the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Those churches in the Macedonia area were also stricken with poverty. In fact, they were so poor that the Apostle Paul never sent them a support letter. He never asked them for money. And it was only when the Macedonian churches heard that there was a relief campaign going on that they approached Paul. They went to Paul and begged him to let them give. Why did they have to beg? I mean, the Apostle Paul is going from church to church to church, asking for money, raising support. So why beg? Well, it's because they were in really bad shape themselves. And due to their severe poverty, they had to insist, because Paul would have been like, Oh, dude, are you sure? I don't know. I don't know if that, you sure that's a good idea. And the Macedonian church has essentially said to Paul, "You did not get to decide what we are able to muster up. Do not rob us of this opportunity to give. Do not rob us of this opportunity to give." And the, the word tells us, well, the Apostle Paul tells us that Macedonians gave above and beyond their means. They gave above and beyond their means. Now, how do you do that? How do you give above and beyond your means? How do you give something that you don't have? Well, you can't. You can't. Unless you make certain sacrifices 
and changes in lifestyle. And so how were the Macedonian churches able to do that? What led them to do that? Paul tells us that before they gave anything to the fund, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Amen. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And I think what that means is that there was a surrender. That there was a, a deep understanding, not just merely an intellectual assent, but there was a deep understanding that God is the owner of everything. That God is a source of all our resources. And they let it drip down into their hearts until it changed them. You see, if you want to know how much the grace of God has impacted, not just here, but how much it has affected the heart, we need to look no further than our generosity. And I'm convicted as I say that. But that's what grace does. Generosity happens when grace overflows. So how do we become a generous people? First, we need to recognize that our poverty is not an obstacle. Second, we need to recognize that our abundance is an opportunity. We need to recognize that our abundance is an opportunity. Now, contrary to the feeling of scarcity, the Apostle Paul wants us to see that we actually have an abundance. Now, the word abundance in our Greek text, where the word abundance comes from, is the word periseo, which means to abound. Periseo. We see it nine times in chapters 8 and 9. In the ESV, it translates in our text as to abound, to excel, to overflow. Overflow. Another word you see over and over again appears actually 11 times in these two chapters, and that's the word charis, which means grace. The word charis, or its derivative, appears 11 times in our two chapters, and it translates in our text as grace, gift, thanks, thanksgiving. Overflow, grace. Overflow, grace. Again and again, over and over, because that is what changes us when our hearts are filled with the right stuff. Because you see, our heart's natural gravitational pull is going to move towards guilt or to move towards cynicism. I mean, no matter how much Logan has talked about grace or no matter what I say up here, most of our hearts is just going to be bent towards hearing, you know, your, our guilt strings are being pulled. And we're going to want to grit our teeth, buck up, and to give for all the wrong reasons. Others of us have already made, made up our minds that the church, we're just after your money. And your mind's already made up. And if you fall in either one of those camps, if that describes you at all, it's not going to really do you any good. It's not going to benefit you to give. And ultimately, it's not going to do us much good either. Because gifts that come out of guilt or obligation are powerless to change the heart. They are not life-giving. They're not transformative. They're not contagious. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, literally, out of grief, or under compulsion, literally, out of necessity or under constraint, you know, because you have to, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
How do we become cheerful givers? Now, how is that even possible? How do we become cheerful givers? Overflow. Grace. Generosity happens when grace overflows. The only way we can be cheerful givers is if we can see that we have an abundance. And the Apostle Paul would tell us that in Christ, we have that very thing. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. In Jesus we are filthy rich. In Jesus we are filthy rich. Jesus left His abundance, left His riches to enter in to our humanity. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Why? So that we can be and we can have everything. Though He knew no sin, He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Though we were dead in trespasses and sins, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Though we were enemies, we were reconciled. Though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in Jesus, we see one who did not tithe 10% of his blood, but he poured it out. He poured out his blood like the Niagara Falls. All of it was poured out. And it was poured out because that was the hefty cost in order to purchase us. Nothing else would do. And not a single drop was deemed wasted. And when that stops becoming the preacher talking, but when it starts to drip down, it overflows and it ripples out. How could it not? How could we not want other people to experience a gift like that? Generosity happens when grace overflows. Now, some of you guys may know that I one time served as a barista at Starbucks. That was a really cool gig. Uh, And for a couple months, uh, I worked there. uh, And it was one of my best jobs I've ever had. Yeah. Ken just looking at me like, I mean, it didn't pay what I needed to get, but it, it, it was a great job. It was, it was a lot of fun. My manager saw that I wasn't very good at making drinks. I was awful behind the bar. Uh, but he saw that I really enjoyed talking with people. So he said, Steve, you're at the window. Every time he put me at the window. And he saw that whenever I was at the window, we seemed to make more tips. More bags were sold. And I really took ownership of that. That was my post. And I got to see the same Starbucks regulars. They're my, they're my people. And you'd have people drive through and I, I recognized the car. I knew what drinks they were going to get. I was ready for them. And they'd be like, hey, welcome to Starbucks. It's Steve-O. How's it going? What can I get for you? And they'd be like, hey, what's up, Steve-O? How's it going? And I'd be like, yo, what up, girl? How you is? And we just have a, we'd have a blast. It was cool. And then the tips would be coming in left and right. We'd be rolling in tips. And it, it, it was great. And I, I can't take too much credit for it because it's, I think it's just something in the, in the water there near that Starbucks. It's just a weird Starbucks. It's just a lot of stuff there I've never seen happen anywhere else. For example, every once in a while, it was a regular occurrence that someone would 
pull up into the drive-thru, and they'd be able, after they pay for their own drinks and food, they'd be like, hey, Steve, what did the person behind me get? I want to pay for theirs, too. And I'd be like, mm, two Frappuccinos, uh, it's $8.99. And they'd get a credit card, and be like, you sure? You, you sure, right? And I'd swipe and pay for the person behind them. And it was an awesome thing. The next car, the driver would pull up, and just a stun on their face when I t would tell them that it's already been paid for. Was, it's on you? No, no, the person in front of you just paid for it. Well, who is it? Like, really? That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, what did the person behind me get? I'll pay for theirs. And, okay, and then swipe. And, and then, I'm not even, I counted one time. Up to 11 cars, back to back to back to back to back to back. We're stunned by generosity. They let it overflow to the next person. And it didn't seem to matter that the purchase behind them was actually more than what they would have received themselves. They would have paid themselves. It was more expensive than they would have paid if they just paid for their own food. It didn't seem to matter because they received a gift. And that sort of generosity they knew was meant to be passed along. And if paid for caffeine, if paid for lattes can have that effect on people, how much more a paid for righteousness bought with the blood of Jesus? Amen. Generosity happens when grace overflows. So where do we take that? Where do we go from here? I mean, we've been looking at four, four weeks we've been looking at giving, and we've still got a lot of questions, don't we? I mean, come on, Steve. Is it 10%? Is that the tithe, and do we have to do it? Uh, does it come out of my gross, or does it come out of my net? Do I have to if I'm in really bad shape, if I've got lots of debt, and I can barely pay my rent? And I think it's fair to assume that many of us have these questions still, because maybe we haven't been given a clear-cut answer. And whereas we would prefer a precise and straightforward answer, I think the Apostle Paul would rather have our sacrifices be willing gifts rather than exactions. And so instead of giving us more rules, I want to leave us with two principles. Two principles to help us reflect and think about how we can become cheerful givers. Two principles. First, make a plan and give what you can. Make a plan and give what you can. Now, some of you guys are thinking, Steve, I get what you're trying to say, that poverty is not an obstacle, but dude, it really is. I mean, if I don't pay my medical bills, if I don't pay the rent, if I don't help out my family who is in dire need, if I can't get my debt under control, dude, we'll be in really bad shape. And to that, I think the Apostle Paul might say, oh, don't beat yourself up. I like what he says here in 2 Corinthians 8, 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, some of us have genuine debts and obligations that maybe for us, what being a good steward means is getting a spreadsheet out and diligently making a plan to get out of debt as quickly as possible. Maybe being a faithful steward means making other sacrifices 
and certain lifestyle changes to accelerate that process. Now, it's easy for us to always be tempted to think, there's, we, never, cause there's, we never get the feeling that there's enough to give. There's never enough left over to give. That's always going to be the temptation. And we're always going to be tempted to trick ourselves into thinking, we just can't. We don't have enough. Consider the Macedonians. But maybe for some of us, we just feel like we can't give that 10%. Well, can we do seven? Can we do three? We are often tempted to want to wait until we have an impressive gift to somebody. I mean, when I want to give a gift to my wife, I want to save up for a good gift. I'm not going to give her like, I'm not, I only got 50 cents in my pocket. Well, here, here you go. We're always wanting to give an impressive gift. But I think Paul is trying to say, you don't have to wait. Give what you got. It doesn't have to be impressive. Start somewhere. Start moving from point A to point B. Others of us, to, to be a good steward might mean giving more than the 10%. I mean, a 10% for someone who's got nothing, it might be very difficult, but 10%, I mean, you still got some cushion. Maybe God is challenging you to give more than the 10%. And I want you to know that before you move from point A to point B, I mean, maybe it's been your desire to want to give generously. And, and, and you've always wanted to give more than 10%, but there's, the gap between point A and point B seems as wide as ever. And the way to move to the chasm is not to grit your teeth and just do it, but it's to be moved by grace. Because, you see, generosity is not first and foremost what God wants from you, it's what God wants for you. Are we being moved by grace? Consider the Macedonians. Generosity happens when grace overflows. Make a plan and give what you can. Be attuned to God's generosity towards you. Don't beat yourself up. Overflow. Grace. You may know that I became an ordained pastor in Atlanta, Georgia at a church called In-Town Community Church. And in its heyday, it had over 1,100 adult members, three services, nine ordained pastors. And through various circumstances or whatever reason, the church saw many of its pastors and staff get laid off and move on. And when I learned about the history of the church after I arrived, I approached an elder and said, dude, am I okay here? Are we going to be okay? And he said, Steve, you got nothing to worry about. We're, in, we're a lot wiser financially, and we've got a lot in reserves. We got a lot in reserves. It was soon after that the economy took a turn for the worse, and the predominating question among the church staff was, how much is left in the reserves? The reserves, the reserves, the reserves. It was an idol of ours. It certainly was for me. Because it seemed to offer us a false sense of security. Years later, after being out of the pastorate for a while, with some chagrin, I returned back to the church 
And I sheepishly asked them to come behind me to send me here to CTKJP Roxbury. I mean, this was the church I resigned at. And yet, I was taken back by not only their willingness, but by their missional enthusiasm and by their generosity. Because they not only committed to, they pledged a sacrificial, significant monthly gift, but they also took their entire reserves. And they gave it to Kendra and myself so that we can bring our family, so that we can serve you here. They gave because Boston is one of the most unreached places in the U.S. They gave so that by us being here, that maybe we can just be one more small piece of the puzzle to help make the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just a little bit more visible here in this city. They gave all of their reserves, the very thing that once brought them security, the very thing that was once their safety net, their idol. They gave the reserves. All of it was poured out. All of it was poured out generously. Because we have a generous God. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we had one of our supporters bring his family here. And they worshiped with us at CTK. Uh, and in, in this very room, they were here a couple of weeks ago. And, and during the passing of the peace, he came to me and said, Steve, we pray for you and this place every time we get your letters. We really look forward to those letters. And it's great to finally be up here. Did you know that there is a church in Atlanta, Georgia that regularly prays for you? That they long for updates and want to know the health of the church? Do you know that there's a church in Los Angeles, California, Atlanta, Georgia, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in Knoxville, Tennessee, Birmingham, Alabama, that give generously or in, invested in this place, that want to hear updates, that pray for you, our well-being, for the grace of Christ to shine in this place, in this city, in Dudley Square, that you're on the map. Does that not move you? Does that not stir you? Does that affect you in any way? Paul would say it should because it has overflowed and has rippled out from our generous God. Generosity happens when grace overflows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to lift up those of us here who doubt your goodness, who can see nothing else but the darkness, the hopelessness around them. We pray that, we pray that you'll surround them with the love of Jesus. We pray for those who are physically hurting, not sure if they can get up or without just 
is being in serious pain, we ask that you would give them grace. We ask them that you have not, that you, we ask that Holy Spirit, you would connect in their hearts that you have not abandoned them, that you see the afflictions of your people. We pray for those who, skeptics and seekers here who are considering come to, coming to know you to take the next step to surrender and yet can't find themselves to go from point A to point B. We ask that you give them faith, the courage to do so. Give them the grace. I pray for those of us here who just, our, our hearts are stale, unmoved. We're not sure how the Jesus thing applies to anything in life that's significant. Maybe we've heard, heard of Jesus, but it hasn't really meant anything to us. Jesus, we ask that you give us faith, the grace to see, the sweetness of Jesus, that you are not only good for it, but that you are good. That you cannot stop doing good for your people. Holy Spirit, where my words have failed, I ask that you would connect the dots. You are the preacher. You are the learner. You are the teacher we need to learn from. And we ask for grace. Even as we move to communion, we ask that you would make the reality, the tangible gift of what you have given for us, a reality that would actually spring us onto mission. That would make a difference. That we as a church would be on mission. That we will not forget our purpose for why we're here, but that we would be on mission to make the grace of Christ visible here in the city. We ask that you would do that here in Dudley. We ask that you would do that in Roxbury, in Jamaica Plain, as it is in heaven. It is for your sake and your name we pray. Amen.